So I sometimes wonder sitting here, as I have the really good fortune from my point of view to be able to do quite often, sort of wonder what's going on <laughs> in terms of what's happening, what your experience is. And I have some sense of that, having spoken with some of you today and of course having spoken with many people over many retreats about their experience and of course having my own experience in the situation over many, many years of doing exactly what we've been doing here today, myself, in different ways, in different forms. And I think in terms of what it's useful to reflect on at the end of our first day together of practicing as we have been, it's useful sometimes just to stop and think about and reflect on what it is that really matters what it is that's really important for us, and perhaps reflect on how that relates to what we're doing here. I remember quite some years ago visiting a friend who was living about 10, 12 miles from here on the edge of the Dart River in a little cottage at the time. He was staying there. And I I just went to visit him. And he rather... um, Pleasingly, I have to say, when I arrived, got out what appeared to be a box of chocolates. And uh, this was kind of a, not an unwelcome thing to, to have take place. And, uh, and it turned out they were a box of chocolates. Um, in fact, praline chocolates from Belgium. Belgium. And sometimes I think I probably shouldn't really talk about this while everyone else is here on retreat and doesn't have any chocolates, probably. Certainly not access to them, but... It was really interesting because although it was a box of chocolates, it was a box of chocolates with instructions. And, you know, most of us probably think we don't need any instructions. We know exactly what to do when faced with a box of chocolates. Uh Uh-huh. But what was interesting is what it said. And we actually sat down, my friend and I said, look at this. He was a practitioner like myself of meditation. He said, look at this. And we read it. And it said... Heading was, you know, Belgian praline chocolate. These handcrafted Belgian praline chocolates have been carefully produced for your exquisite enjoyment. Please follow the instructions. And it said, turn off the television. (laughs) Put away your newspapers and your magazines. Sit down in a comfortable chair with a friend, if you wish. Open the box. Take a moment to look upon the shapes, the forms, the colours. Pause. And Can you hear the instruction? It's lovely. It's not what we normally do, right? And it says, take one of the chocolates out and place it on your tongue. Don't chew it. Just wait a moment. Take in the aroma. Allow the chocolate to begin to melt in the warmth of your mouth and slowly chew. Don't swallow too quickly. It's all in the instructions. And then it said, and when you've finished, if you wish, you may take another. And what was really interesting is my friend and I, we sat down, we, we followed, you know, quite delighted in a certain way to follow the instructions. I mean, this is meditation instructions for eating chocolate, right? But what we said, what was really obvious to us afterwards, and I can't remember which of us said it, but I remember the words afterwards, one of us looked at the other and we said, you know, usually we never really taste the chocolate. It's like we're so busy getting it and having it and eating it and enjoying it and thinking that was great, I'll have another one, that we don't really receive it fully. And following the instructions meant that we, we did. And it was, it was something particularly touching and I've always regretted that I didn't write down the name and the detail of the manufacturer and track them down and you know, order a caseload. Um, But it nonetheless stays with me. It's 20 years ago this happened or more. But it stays with me as a a kind of expression of what we're doing here. It's so easy in our life, even when things are lovely, to not really fully receive it, to not really live it as it could be lived. 
And so much of our life, it seems we're kind of disconnected. We're, we're, we're not fully in what's happening. We're not really here. And it's important to acknowledge and to really face up to the implications, the reality of this, of what happens in that way. As the, the uh, great and much-loved teacher of Buddha Dasa, who lived in Thailand in the 20th century, he was once asked, how would you describe the world? He responded using just three words. He said, lost in thought. Lost in thought. Again, sitting here on retreat, engaging in our practices, sitting, walking, and the yoga, we might notice how that has a certain relevance for us, how so much of the time we're carried away by our thinking processes, it seems. And so there's something really important about understanding what's going on here. Because our life can be difficult and challenging and we can often be frustrated or annoyed with others or ourselves around how it's going without really understanding what's happening. It's like this story I once heard which I rather liked about a a businessman who was travelling away from his uh, normal location to, to a very important meeting. He was driving in small country lanes. I kind of imagine it being maybe similar to here in Devon. I don't know where this happened. And um, he was driving along, and at some point he realized that trying to get to this place he had to get to, he realized he was no longer sure where he was. So he saw a farmer working in the field, and he stopped and called out to them. The farmer came over, and he said, Can you, can you tell me the way to get to Cheston Hall? from here and have an important meeting there. So I'm saying, actually, I don't think I've heard of Chester. Oh, I don't know how you would get there. He says, okay, can you tell me the name of the road that I'm driving on? He says, actually, I don't know if it has a road, it has a name. Sorry, I don't think I can. Well, you know, if I knew the road, I could put it in my sat-nav and find out where I was. But, you know, um, and I'm sorry, I really don't know that I can help you here, said the farmer. And And the... The businessman started to feel a bit frustrated. He said, you don't seem to know very much at all, do you? The farmer responded, not by coughing. (coughs) He responded by saying, it's true, but I'm not lost. (laughs) And we can very easily get a little frustrated or upset with the reality we find ourselves in when we don't quite know where we are or what's happening. The tendency easy to easily can be to blame others at times. Lucy, could you pass me, or throw me in fact, that bag of tissues? A box of tissues. I, I have a cold that seems to be thinking it might become something and I'm not sure whether it will, but I'm... Um, Hopefully it won't, but who knows. We tend to easily judge others or judge ourselves for the way things are or blame. I was talking about this here or teaching a, a retreat a couple of weekends ago and at the end of the retreat, someone came up to me and told me, he said there's, there's this, he described it as a, as a teaching or a, a maxim, I think is the word he used, of stoicism, a particular school of thought and philosophy that has some close parallels with the teaching of the Buddha. And he said something, and I really liked it, so I said, I, I hope I can remember that. And so I want to share it with you, because it, refer- it relates a lot to what happens here. He said, unlearned, this is the maxim or, or, or teaching of Stoic Stoicism, he says, unlearned people blame everybody else. Learners, those who are learning, blame themselves. While those who have learnt blame no one. Something very interesting in that, that we often tend to feel like it's something, everything is someone else's fault. Until we start looking a little bit more closely at what's going on, and we start to maybe then easily feel that maybe it's our own fault. Ultimately, it's not about blaming or fault. 
About, it's about understanding what's happening and learning how to work skillfully within the reality that is. To see that we become lost because we haven't yet understood or addressed the power of fear and desire, of craving and aversion or anger in our lives and in our world. And as a result of the forces and the power of these particular human tendencies, we get drawn into the past, looking for the answers to how we can fix or change circumstances, trying to understand how things happen in the past in order to know how we'll be able to control or manipulate them in the future, in order to maintain or regenerate those things that we wish for in order to get rid of and prevent the re-arising of those things that we don't wish for. It's quite a simple, in a certain way, simple dynamic mechanism that we become pulled into again and again and again. And it's fundamentally what's happening when we get lost, when we find ourselves disconnected, not quite knowing where we are. And we can see this play out in so many different ways. The sense of wanting to get something other than, different than, or more than what we already have. Even when we have something we want, we're not often content with it. We want more of it. Well, so much you know, more strongly we respond equally when something we don't want is what's happening. And yet the truth of our experience is that sometimes it's not the way we want it to be. Sometimes our mind, our body isn't comfortable, isn't at ease. Sometimes things happen that we don't wish. This is true for all of us. And so we put a lot of effort, we put a lot of energy into trying to get the things we want and to get rid of the things we don't want. And it has an impact on us. And the story I often like to share is what one of my own experiences of this when I was on retreat once and um, the, the cooks served lasagna for lunch. And lasagna is something that I happen to love. And I uh, managed, I was on retreat as you are here right now and I saw or smelt or realized at some point that it was lasagna being served and I got myself pretty close to the front of the queue while trying not to look like I was getting as quickly as I could to the front of the queue because that isn't what you're supposed to do really. Um, and I took this piece of lasagna that, you know, I was trying to be moderate and restrained but it was quite a substantial piece because, you know, you need to make sure there's enough for everybody else but I went away with it and as I sat down and it was like this amazing, fragrant, yummy thing, I realised that I was a bit concerned that there might not be enough here for me and that I might need to have some more and there might not be any left by the time I went back. So I kind of got gripped by this urge and worry and anxiety and I started eating it really quickly. And I was kind of like just shoveling it in, trying to be mindful but not really succeeding. <laughs> just shoveling this food in, thinking, will there be enough for a second? You know, will I get there in time? Will it all be gone? Uh, 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 uh. And of course by the time I finished this, actually what turned out to be quite a large piece of lasagna... Um, I was stuffed. I didn't want any more. I was full. I was actually uncomfortably full. I'd eaten more than was a good idea. I hadn't enjoyed it for a moment. I hadn't actually enjoyed the experience at all. Because I was so worried about having some more and will I get enough and will there be more. It's so sad, isn't it? How we do that. And the sense that we have that somehow we have to get more than or something other than what we've got or we've got to get to some other place other than where we are. It leads to a sense of leaning forward into the future always trying to get somewhere else or get something else. And there's this sort of momentum that drives us through life. And we come here and we feel the impact of it, the, the pressure of it, the stress of it in our hearts, in our bodies, in our systems. It's like, oh, it's not easy to slow down. It's not easy to go quietly, 
to sit for 40, 45 minutes doing not so much, to walk back and forth. You know, sometimes we think, oh, oh, the sitting, gosh, I wish it was over. It's quite a long thing to be sitting here for 40, 45 minutes. We get to the walking and then, of course, you know, we want the walking to be over after 10 minutes. We think, I can't wait for the next sitting. You notice the irony. We get to the next sitting, oh, when's the next walking? Does anyone recognize this? Or maybe it's the yoga. The yoga, oh, the yoga, great, can't wait for the yoga. Yoga turns up. Actually, I'd quite like to do a few more postures. You know, I'm just moving really slowly. I want to I want to get active. Or, you know, this ongoing sense of momentum, of movement towards doing more. Because if I do that, then I'll feel the way I want to feel. Or I'll get to the place I want to get to. There's always that sense of if then that takes us away that takes us out of where we are and it's exhausting and profoundly unsatisfying if we live our life like this it slips through our fingers this precious remarkable mysterious thing called being alive it can just slip through our fingers and we wonder what happened or what's happening. So what's really important for us? What's really important in life? What we really value? We might describe it in different ways. We could talk about peace, about happiness, about well-being. For ourselves, for those we care for, for all of life. These things are perhaps more universal values. We might articulate it differently ourselves, but perhaps we recognize what this points to we talk about peace, happiness, well-being freedom and yet we don't necessarily understand what it is that brings that about how it is to find our way there because if this process of getting more or getting and having and keeping or getting rid of and fixing if this really worked and would get us to that place we want to be it would have worked by now it's not like doing more of it is going to produce a different result it's going to produce the same result. If it works, great. But if it doesn't work, we need to stop and question just a moment. Do I want to keep doing that? Does it make sense? What we need, perhaps most deeply, is to, to cultivate wisdom, understanding. To see truly for ourselves what it is that leads to happiness. What brings well-being. What allows us to feel a sense of ease, of connection, of, of inner peace and joy. Our society, our world around us very powerfully gives us the message that happiness comes through producing and consuming. Through making more, having more consuming more, not just material things, but experiences. So we think, you know, maybe we don't come on a retreat imagining we're going to get a whole lot of nice sort of stuff to go home with. It's not like going shopping. Clearly, we're not going to get a lot of stuff. But we can often have the sense that we're going to get something from this. Now, interestingly, Jack Cornfield, one of the senior teachers of our tradition, he once observed he said you know people come on a retreat thinking it's like going to the shops it's like great all these things i could get but actually a retreat is like going to the dump (laughs) this is a place where you get to let go of and leave behind some things you don't need to be carrying around with you anymore you know and that's you know going to the dump isn't like this highly valued highly rated experience in our society is it you know, it's not like you, you see that sort of presented as this is what's going to really make a difference in your life. Go and get rid of some of your stuff. But actually it's what makes it the biggest difference often is what creates space for us. And, you know, we, we read and we hear so many messages coming at us in all directions about the need to make more, to have more, to use more. And I was struck just recently with actually the tragedy and the confusion or the blindness and tragic blindness expressed in a, an article, it was, I think it was on the BBC website where, this, where there was an acknowledgement being expressed or a recording of the fact that in the last several years the consumption and use of petrol has considerably reduced in England and Britain by a significant percentage, 15, 20, 25% maybe. And of course 
that the, the motoring trades associations were all concerned about this and the petrol retailers were kind of saying, this is a real problem. Now, from the point of view of our planet, having less petrol getting burnt is such a good thing. But from the normal mode of how our culture, our society, our economy and our media relates to it, actually, no, this is a problem. You know, how many times do we get told in the last two or three years that we can solve our economy's problem by spending more money and buying more things? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And there's a cost to it, not just for ourselves, but for our world. What we see is that this philosophy, this idea that satisfaction will be gained through experiences and things... That happiness is the result of getting things the way I want them to be. Leads to our pursuing, trying to get, and avoiding, trying to get rid of experience. That basically, it beca- life becomes a process or a project of trying to control what's happening. What's happening around us, what's happening within us. Sometimes we can take on meditation in the same way. Or yoga might be a way to get the experience we want or get rid of the experience we don't want. It's a form of spiritual materialism. And we need to look carefully at what's going on because of course, yes, yoga, meditation, spiritual practice can bring us into contact with what it is that we're really looking for, what we're really interested in. But it doesn't happen through controlling or manipulating our experience. Fundamentally, we can't control what's happening. This is one of the important things we see here. We have a certain amount of influence, of course, but if we look at our mind and our body, what happens when we sit down? Is it possible to be comfortable for 40 minutes? Really comfortable? Maybe, for some. There'll be a rare few. And, you know, if we sit here for a little bit longer, we'd probably find we're not comfortable. And probably you start to wonder, well, gosh... He could talk quite a bit, this guy it seems, so how long are we going to be sitting here? Am I going to be comfortable? Probably someone's had that thought. You know, it's not an unreasonable one to have. You know, some of the teachers in uh, Asia that I remember sitting with and that, you know, they, they didn't have a watch with them when they sat down and they would just talk for hours sometimes. And you're just there. No option for lying down or leaning on something, not even a cushion under your bottom, you just sit there. Well, we don't do it like that here, don't worry. But that sense of, you know, that's our body. Just trying to get it to be comfortable. Yoga can help, sure. Stretching, movement, exercise, diet helps. doesn't mean it's always going to be comfortable. Our mind, getting our mind to be comfortable. 45 minutes, comfortable mind. Hmm. Doesn't always happen, does it? Just getting it to be quiet would be nice, let alone comfortable. And we can't even do that. Now, it's a little bit embarrassing, isn't it? We tend to think this is our mind. If it's our mind, it should do what we tell it to. But does it? See, just be quiet, pay attention to the breath. Sounds good, could be peaceful. But no, that's not what happens. It goes here, it goes there. This is telling us something about our life. Because life is not something that's here to be controlled. And if we see we can't even control our own mind, what hope do we have of controlling other people? And look how much trouble they cause. You know, have you ever tried to get just one person to be the way you want them to be? You know, good luck. Actually, if you figure out how to do it, you could probably make a lot of money writing a book. But I don't think anyone's going to do that. Perhaps some people like to think they have. But ultimately, there's something about life that when we operate in that way of trying to kind of manipulate or control experience, we inevitably come out not really receiving or discovering, not finding the satisfaction that we look for. It's like we, 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 we're living in a, almost a fantasy of hope that if I do it more, it'll work. And... You know, seeking pleasure, avoiding pain. It makes sense. And at a certain level, of course, there's an appropriateness in terms of certain things we need to take care to protect ourselves from harm. We need to make sure and, you know, put time and energy into having those things that, you know, like 
we do need somewhere to live and food and clothing things. We do need to have these things to take care of ourselves. Of course, that's not bad or wrong in itself. And to be able to recognize things that may be harmful and painful in, in ways that we need to then protect ourselves from so far as we can. But, but there's a way in which we need to look at what's going on in this process. Now, I remember um, growing up in New Zealand, living in a small country town, um, and there wasn't really much for young folk to do, so as soon as we turned 15, which is when we were allowed to drive cars back then, it's a bit crazy, but get a full license at age 15, we would uh, start you know, going places, and the places we often would go would be to the, the pubs, the hotels, and in fact, people seemed to, back then, allow you to do that, despite the fact it wasn't legal for another few years, because they'd rather have you in the pub drinking than buying the things and driving around in your car drinking it. So it was quite a normal thing to do. But what struck me after this had been going on for, as my primary social activity for probably two or three years, um, was that we spent a lot of time saying, what a great time we had the last time we did this and, you know, got plastered or whatever we did. Um, mostly just got plastered, you know, got drunk. And how great that was and how wonderful that was. And then we spent quite a bit of time about talking about what a great time we were going to have the next time we did this and how wonderful that would be. But there was this sense in me all the time of actually, I'm not enjoying this. And actually, I didn't enjoy it last time. I'm not sure I'm going to enjoy it next time. But the shared story we would tell each other, we actually quite enjoyed telling each other the story, was it was great, it is great, it's going to be great. But the truth is it wasn't great at all. And at some point I realised, I don't want to keep doing this. We might have got a little bit more sophisticated in our lives than I was, age sort of 15, 16, 17, 18. In fact, I'm sure you wouldn't be here if you weren't. Um, I certainly wouldn't have come to anything as uh, wacky and bizarre as this at that time in my life. At least I don't think I would have. But can we notice how we're looking for things to fulfill us, to entertain us, that sense of if I get something more. And, you know... It's quite a simple, unstimulating environment. We're so used to being entertained, to being fulfilled, to having something to consume, to feed on. Have you noticed yourself going into the room with the notice board and examining the notices again? And maybe again? And reading all the information on it, despite the fact that you know what it says. But somehow it's interesting. Or, you know, I would sometimes find myself, and I've seen plenty of other people do this, you know, you're getting, having a cup of tea and you look at the label and the tea bag, you know, reading what it says. Have you noticed yourself doing that? I mean, what is it about us that wants something to consume, to read, to be engaged with? It's like it's not easy to just let ourselves feel what it's like to be here. Because sometimes that's a little scary. Sometimes it's a little challenging to us to just be exposed to life. And yet if we're not easily able to be at sort of comfortable with that we keep moving away from it we keep looking for something else imagining that this isn't it or what it should be and we get busy we rush and we so want to not have to keep going at that pace we so want to have a rest and a break to get a break from our busy minds and our busy lives and yet when we're offered the break it's really hard to take it or let ourselves have it. And again, we, we need to be very kindly in understanding ourselves in this. It's not to judge or blame oneself, but to see, ah, look what's happening here. Look how much we might wish to have some quiet space and how quickly we tend to fill it with the urge to get busy with something in our mind to have something to do, that we can show that we've done something, whether it be through the meditation or through the yoga. And it's not accidental that the orientation of the practices we're offering is not giving you so much 
that you can say, I've got something, I've done something, I've made something. But it's more like the process of going through what we're doing. This is what's important, this is what's useful. This is your life. Here. This is how it is. It's got a particular shape and form here, but the, the basic undercurrent of what you encounter here, this is your life. Not all of it, but something significant, important, and essential to pay attention to is being revealed here. What are we going to do with this life that we have and that we have not forever? You know, as somebody once said, nobody lay on their deathbed wishing they'd spent more time in the office. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? And although I would say, unless what they do in their office is what they love and value the most, and then they might. That would be different. But that's not often the case. So easily what we really love and care for and value seems to get subsumed in the pressure to survive, to succeed, to perform in all sorts of different ways. For myself, I was living in a big city which I didn't like, doing a job which I found oppressive and painful, though appearing to be successful and doing very well. And it was hard to really find the courage to try something different, to explore, even though in my heart I wanted to. I was scared to make a change. And in my early 20s, as I then was, uh, one thing that probably was the catalyst for my changing of my life was that my dearest childhood friend, who I'd spent a lot of time with and whose family I'd lived with when my own had sort of disintegrated in my early teenage years, this uh, dear friend of mine died age similarly to me, early 20s, due to a surgical misadventure that uh, was totally unnecessary to have happened, and yet did. And very tragically, he was gone. And it was a very powerful experience for me, a very painful experience for me. I didn't get to say goodbye. But it taught me something, and I treasure this gift that my friend gave me not entirely intentionally I imagine but the sense of you've got to do it now whatever it is that's important for you you can't put it off to later because there may not be one we're not guaranteed some specific period of life so what's important to us we need to live here and now that doesn't mean we have to give up our lives or change our world necessarily. Though for myself, that's what it called me to do. But to say, what's important? What's at the heart of my life? And can I make that the central thing? To not try and fit, your fit what's important into your life. It doesn't really work because so many other things will crowd it out, take up the space. You have to fit your life into what's important. <coughs> and so for me, this involves coming back to what's, what's most central, what's at the core, what, what does it all come from? Even the, the, the wish and the need you know, for myself to stay in this, what for me was quite, I would have to say sort of destructive as a situation. I, I, 
It was something really painful for me to be in this. And yet it gave me some security. It gave me some financial support, which I needed. And it was hard to let go of. So we can sometimes be really kind of, it's important to be respectful and compassionate towards ourselves. And yet seeing that actually I was doing that because I wanted to be safe and well and happy. And yet that wasn't what it was giving me. And so I had to make a change. I didn't know what I would be looking for. I didn't know what to do instead. I was quite uncertain, confused even. And not a little, not just a little afraid of what life might present. And yet there was a sense of, I've got to try something else. And for me, something I've seen and learned again and again, it's so important to give oneself permission to explore, to try out other possibilities. If we have the sense that where we are isn't fulfilling or isn't meeting our needs. That doesn't mean that just because things are difficult, we say, oh, it's difficult, I want to do it differently. Sometimes the very same thing we're already engaged in, we can transform it by the way we engage in it. It's part of what we learn in meditation. But what's important is getting in contact with what's a, what moves us in our heart. And for me, the sense of wanting to live well, to be happy, was the way I phrase it. And the wish to somehow be able to contribute to the welfare of others, to not cause harm. These were things that were important to me and continue to be central in my life. And giving ourselves permission to explore means we have to allow it to be okay if we make mistakes. I didn't figure it out in a hurry. In fact, I wouldn't say I figured it out yet in terms of some final solution or answer. There's always compromises. There's always challenges. There's always ambiguities in life. And yet recognizing, okay, if I want to learn, if I want to grow, I have to be willing to make mistakes. This is a, a really helpful thing to take on. We sometimes believe that it's not okay to get it wrong or make mistakes. And yet there's no other way we learn. Only by going out into unfamiliar territory can we grow beyond the limits of the confines that we may be within already. And in going out into unfamiliar territory, we don't know how to do it right or well. And sometimes we'll get it wrong. That's okay. It's like the story of a Zen practitioner who had an opportunity to meet with the, the grand master of the, the lineage. And the uh, student, he was very happy and excited and he knew he didn't have long and that the master was pretty severe, so he was a bit scared. But he came along and he, he had the opportunity to ask just two or three questions. So he asked the master, he said, Master, can you tell me, what's the most important thing to cultivate? And the master, she looked at him and she said, wise discernment, good judgment. And the student says, oh yes, yes, thank you, thank you. Ah, can you tell me how do you cultivate good judgment? The master looks at him, hmm, experience. Thank you, yes, of course, of course. How do you get experience? Bad judgment. That's how it works. So we're asked to bring some courage and some patience to this process. Learning the practice of meditation isn't something we can just do, have it described and do it. We have to understand what's going on and how our way of doing it will initially be influenced by our habits and patterns. The very things we need to address and understand will in fact impact on the process of the practice itself in a way that they will impact on anything that we do in our life. Whatever shows up here shows up in our life for sure. There's nothing here that isn't in our life. But here we can start to see it more clearly. And in seeing it, we have more possibilities for learning how to handle it well. This, this quality of exploration in support of learning, of understanding, of growing is so, so important. 
taking risks, trying something a little different. For many of you, just even coming here was probably taking a little bit of a risk. And wonderful that you've done that. And staying here, once you realize what you brought yourself into, as you have done, you know? Also, taking some courage and steadiness. Again, in our culture, there's so often a discouragement of exploration, of straying outside of the, the norm and the form and the box, even to the extent that actually quite sadly, this, this phrase, you know, you've probably all heard it, curiosity killed the cat. It's kind of like, it's not a good advertisement for curiosity, is it? I was really struck and touched when I heard only a few years ago that that's not the whole proverb. The proverb or the saying, which is old, dates back centuries, is curiosity killed the cat and then the cat came back. Interesting, huh? There's a lot more possible. Suddenly this starts to sound attractive. But culturally we've forgotten the second half of what's being revealed there. It's like, yeah, to go into the unknown, the unfamiliar, does involve a certain dropping away of how we know ourselves and how we've known ourselves to be. But something new and fresh and alive can spring forth in that. So there's a real, again, invitation towards being open to trying out and exploring. Not getting it right all at once, giving yourself permission to find your way. To find your way. And the Buddha often spoke of the importance of connecting with and honoring the, the, the underlying goodness and wholesomeness of our aspiration in life that we do wish to be happy to be well to take care of those we care for and those things we care about this is natural and a shared intention and aspiration in human beings and to honor the goodness of this our kind actions our kind intentions our kind and wholesome aspirations to serve the well-being of ourselves and others to really honor this to see that this is fundamental and that this informs our journey, although it doesn't guarantee that the journey is swift or easy. And the Buddha went on to explain that what we give attention to and how we pay attention to things shapes our life. We're not in control of what's happening necessarily, but the way we attend to it and what we give our attention to shapes the world, shapes our life profoundly. So here we're learning to cultivate a quality of attention, this capacity, this natural capacity of attention that we all have, cultivated in such a way as it can serve our well-being. Rather than being at the mercy of our habitual reactivity, we can actually guide and train and nourish the capacity of attentiveness in a way that serves us. So what we notice initially is the mind is just pulled and grabbed and goes in all sorts of directions. And sometimes we can be quite hard on ourselves if that happens. It's important to not be judgmental or harsh, but actually kindly forgiving. Just seeing, oh yeah, this is what happens. If we've let our mind run wild for the decades, the years and decades of our life, it's not going to stop doing that just because we say, you know, be quiet, meditate. Even if we've done it, you know, all day, it's not going to just stop because now I want it to stop. It's not like that. And sometimes it can be really intensely reactive. There's a lovely saying in India that says, well, it's sort of a, a question, really, a proverb, wisdom proverb. It goes, you know, how do you fence in a rogue bull elephant? And, of course, you know, as everyone in India knows, a rogue bull elephant can trample down any fence you build. So how would you fence it in? And the, 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 the answer is, put it in a really large field. And then it doesn't need to trample the fence. It doesn't need to break out. 
So there's this invitation to really bring a quality of spaciousness to our experience. The allowing of what is, of what happens. That's what allows us to start to settle and come to rest. Within that, the clear intention to be reconnecting, coming back. Noticing when we get caught up and lost in the patterns of reactivity, the grasping towards that which we experience as pleasant, which we seek for, to get, to, con- to, to maintain or to get back. And the, the urge to get rid of, to resist, to avoid those things that are uncomfortable, difficult or scary, to make sure they never arise again. To just let that be something that we see happening when it happens, but we don't have to give ourselves to or give authority to. So that we learn what it means to be as we are. Learn what it means to be where we are. And this is always possible. In any moment we notice what's happening, we can begin again. We can come back. We can reconnect. And it can seem at times like it's a lot of hard work, this meditation. It's really hard work. You know, it's like it's easier to give ourselves something to get busy with. Or it's easier to, you know, do a whole lot of postures in the yoga. And, you know, at the end of it, no, yes, I've done all of this. Somehow that is easier, isn't it? It's not easy to be confronted with the sort of momentum, the urge in that way of our minds. It requires an effort to keep catching that that momentum and just pausing with it. Breathing with it. Ah, just allowing the energy to be felt and therefore to begin to dissipate rather than reacting to the energy and somehow trying to fix it by often what actually simply perpetuates it. And yes, it is hard work. It's simple what we're doing here, but it's not easy. And yet, it's much harder to live our lives unconsciously. It's much harder to be driven by those habits and patterns of mind and have no freedom to choose to not be driven by them. No capacity to just stop in the face of them and rest in our life where we are and as we are. But in our practice we start to see, we start to sense that it's possible for us. And as we more and more develop that capacity, we can rest in it. It starts to become a place of refuge, a place that holds us. And it's not so much that we're doing it or making it happen, but we realize that quite naturally as we release the momentum of the busyness, of the doing, of the reactivity, without judging it or rejecting it, but we just release it by coming back to the felt sense of body, of breathing, of walking, of moving one limb slowly in the posture or whatever it is that we're doing, we start to sense, we can start to recognize that there's a, there's a natural quality that's here for us, this quality of presence, of wakefulness, of aliveness. It's, simple, it's not something we have to do, but it's what here when, what's here naturally, inherently, we could say, when we're not carried away by the patterns and the habits and the reactivities of our minds and our lives and the belief systems that give authority to them. So we start to just settle into something more natural, more easeful, more open. And we can begin to explore what this means for us, what this offers to ourselves, what this offers to our life and this world. And so we, we learn to wake up again and again into our life. And in this we can come to discover what it is that meets that place in our heart that's interested to know life deeply. To live life fully.
And we can come to rest right where we are. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives come to rest more fully where we are and to understand both the the power and the cost of our or the impact of our reactivity and the momentum of our busyness. And to understand equally the liberation of our heart and our mind from that conditioning. To abide more deeply, more fully in the truth, in the peace and the simplicity of life as it is our life and all of life. And may this be so for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.